Hello and welcome everybody. I'm Osama Gawish, the host of the Untold Stories uh, podcast. Julian Assange is a one step closer to be extradited to the United States. In this episode, we look at the case that not enough media organizations care about for unknown reasons. Last Wednesday marked the 1,000 days for Assange in prison facing the threat of being extradited to the United States and more than 175 years charges for illegally violating the Espionage Act, according to the Department of Justice in the U.S. Today is 20 years since Guantanamo Bay opened. We still remember Guantanamo files leaked by Chelsea Manning and published by WikiLeaks in 2011. Julian Assange faced at least four charges related to the WikiLeaks Guantanamo Bay detainee assessment briefs. During the last decade, Assange may be one of the most controversial people in the entire world. For many, he is a brave journalist who revealed the truth about war crimes. For others, he is a spy who put people's lives in danger by publishing secret and classified documents about the U.S. military. We'll start our discussion in this episode after this. I think these espionage charges against the WikiLeaks guy are a huge deal and a very dark development. They have him locked up in the highest security prison, 23 hours a day in solitary confinement. This has been going on for a long time. They're just as dumb we are. It took us a very long time, years, to ask the obvious question. What exactly did Julian Assange do wrong? Everyone, all good people hate Julian Assange. What was his crime exactly? It is not the same kind of criminal allegation they made against him in the initial indictment. It's not some hacking computer crime like they originally charged him with. These new charges are trying to prosecute Assange for publishing, publishing things that the people sent him. He was a journalist. He was an editor. That's literally true. In newspapers and magazines and investigative journalists publish secret stuff all the time. That is the bread and butter of what we do. Julian Assange brought you information that you had a right to know. I would also point out the irony that the U.S. government has spent the past decade pursuing Assange while failing to prosecute any of the alleged war crimes by U.S. military personnel that Assange and WikiLeaks revealed. Relating to two horrible wars, Iraq and Afghanistan, that we absolutely should not be a part of. What this is, is now a novel legal effort to punch a huge hole in the First Amendment, the first part of our Bill of Rights, by labeling it criminal espionage to publish secret stuff. This case is about criminalizing freedom of speech. A new legal doctrine, a whole new legal lane for the U.S. government that's never existed before, where anyone who publishes stuff the government doesn't want published gets prosecuted by the Justice Department under the most serious statutes imaginable, facing long prison terms for doing it. He's being charged for what journalists do every day. This is, to put it bluntly, wrong, unconstitutional, and downright tyrannical. What he published was truthful information that the American public and the world have the right to see. He's a publisher, just like Jeff, we are. Jeff Assange's publishing of classified information runs afoul of the law. So does the work of just about every single press outlet, this one included. It would fundamentally change the balance of power between the people and our government. So, in this episode, I'm raising some fundamental questions to be answered. Firstly, how is Julian Assange now regarding his mental health issues? Secondly, is Julian Assange a journalist? If yes, why many publications and ministry media in the United States and the United Kingdom are not campaigning for his release? If not, 
So why many freedom of press organizations, human rights defenders, independent journalists, and NGOs around the world are campaigning for his release? And what are the differences between Assange's work and WikiLeaks' work and any other investigative journalist work regarding publishing classified or secret information? And when it comes to Julian Assange, why do democratic countries like the US and the UK act like any authoritarian regime, ignoring things like public interest, freedom of press, and freedom of journalism? And another question is why Donald Trump didn't respond to the Mexican president's request regarding pardoning Julian Assange. And another important question is why has the Biden administration taken up the mantle of the former President Trump? And in case of Assange extradited to the United States, will the Espionage Act be every journalist's nightmare in this world? And the last question and the main question of this episode will be what next for Julian Assange? So to find out more about answers to my questions, let me welcome our guest speakers in this episode, Stella Morris, a lawyer and Assange's fiancé, and Rebecca Vincent, Director of International Campaign at Reporters Without Borders. Thank you very much both for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Osama. Yes, thank you. And for our listeners, you can join the discussion, ask questions, or make a contribution by pressing the call button on the right and will be held in the caller's queue. And Stella, let me start with you, actually. How is Julian now regarding his health condition and his mental health issues? Well, Julian is in a very difficult uh, position. I mean, he's an incredibly strong person, but he has been in uh, the harshest prison of the UK uh, since his arrest on the 11th of April 2019, um, soon to be three years inside this prison where he's not serving a sentence. He's there at the behest of the U.S. Uh, because the U.S. has uh, initiated this outrageous prosecution. And the U.K. courts have so so far um, not uh, decisively blocked it. They initially blocked it in, in January uh, a year ago. Um, and throughout the extradition, but the U.S. appealed it. And so Julian is in a kind of um, indefinite limbo. Uh, he's been in an indefinite limbo since his he was first arrested on the 7th of December 2010. Um, it was just seven days after WikiLeaks had started publishing the U.S. State Department cables and uh, the, the, just the day after that, um, an Interpol red notice was issued and he was arrested uh, six days later uh, where he voluntarily went to the police station. But ever since the 7th of December 2010, he has been in one form of detention or another in increasing confinement over time. He spent seven years inside the embassy without any access to the outside. Again, at the time, he was not charged with anything uh, anywhere. And uh, then he was arrested uh, when Ecuador illegally withdrew his his um, protected status as a political asylee inside the embassy. And he was then taken to these very harsh conditions in uh, Belmarsh prison. And on top of that, uh, he's suffered uh, really severe isolation because on top of everything else, uh, there has been the COVID pandemic and um so, you know, uh, he, he's yeah. endured incredible hardship and 
it you know it would affect any person um and he's you know he's a fighter uh but his his you know it's it's difficult mentally but it's also difficult physically and in october he suffered a stroke um on the day of his the first day of his extradition of the US extradition appeal hearing on the 27th of october and when was the last time you met him um i saw him on the 2nd of january um th- yeah that was the last time but i hadn't seen him for a couple of weeks a bit longer um over the christmas period i know this may be a silly question but he's optimistic about the campaign the the work you are doing the defense team the the ngos or no what, what about his yeah his thoughts now well it's a very deeply concerning position to be in i mean Julian's case kind of uh makes or breaks um very basic questions about our democracy about the nature of journalism about the nature of what we as a as a public are um entitled to know are we entitled to know the pr- the truth are we are journalists entitled uh to publish the truth uh without fearing being imprisoned for the rest of their lives without being fearing being snatched by a foreign country and prosecuted on, under um foreign espionage laws there are really profound questions and um you know for the united states the united states is the country with the strongest freedom of speech freedom of press protections in the world and this case fundamentally changes the relationship between the governors and the governed Yeah, and Rebecca for many years reporter without borders campaigned for Julian Assange as a journalist and a reporter demanding his release. However, many people still argue that Assange is not a journalist. So, what are your views on that and why you are campaigning for Assange's release? Well, for reporters without borders, this case is very clear. Julian Assange has been targeted for his contributions to journalism. But I think sometimes the fixation on whether or not he is a journalist is a bit of a straw man argument because it's used to try to divide support um you know to put people into two camps either you think this and you support him or you don't think this and you don't but if you look at why he is targeted it is undeniable he published information in the public interest that should not be a crime in the United States or anywhere and when you look at that matter the label in itself i think doesn't bear as much weight as sometimes it's made out uh to hold there it is undeniable as well that the implications of this case uh will be alarming for journalism it will set one of the most dangerous precedents for press freedom for journalism internationally that that i've seen in my career certainly what he has endured over more than a decade now already will have had a chilling effect on journalism we will already not know what stories have not been told because of what he has been through but let alone what happens next if he is extradited to the united states if he is prosecuted there he would be the first publisher pursued under the espionage act that would set a precedent uh that really will impact the entire future of journalism internationally that cannot be overstated so we campaign for him as one of our top global priority cases we have monitored the entire extradition proceedings in the UK we will continue to do so uh hopefully if the supreme court will review this case um and whatever happens next if he goes to the US if he goes anywhere else we will be there because the implications uh for our global work are so 
important. And that yeah. would be our single call now is for everybody to join that. I think you mentioned the broad support he has from other free expression groups. That's also the case now with major media organizations. Those who care about free expression are pretty unified now on this case. So we need to speak out in solidarity now before this happens to anybody else and to ensure that he is released at the earliest opportunity. Yeah, I hope so. But what is the legal situation now, Repeka, for Julian? So actually, Stella, Stella will be able to get more into detail on that than me. But uh, we, of course, had a high court decision on the 10th of December, which uh, was really concerning. It overturned the uh, previous decision of the district court. The district court had ruled on the 4th of January last year that he should not be extradited but only on the basis of mental health. And so that's partly why we're in the situation we are in now. Um, at the time, Reporters Without Borders, we had, of course, welcomed the barring of extradition, which is a positive step. And we shared the, the concerns about his serious state of mental health, which would certainly be of really at really high risk in the U.S. prison system. Um, but we also found that the initial decision was weak in terms of the substance because it did it was not a decision in favor of press freedom and journalism. It did not recognize the very concerns that are the reason that we campaign in this case. So that decision left the door open already for the same sort of case to be brought against somebody else, regardless of what happened next. Uh, that decision said that it was only mental health reasons that meant that he shouldn't be extradited. So then the High Court, of course, only looked at those grounds. So what the High Court considered was, in fact, very narrow. It wasn't the merits of the case. The entire High Court focus was on Julian Assange's mental health and U.S. prison conditions. And then these assurances that the U.S. government has put forward, which they should have put forward much earlier in the case if this was going to be considered. Um, but there's a number of reasons that those assurances about his treatment are unreliable. And even if they honor them, the our main concerns and the principles of the case still stand. So he will be held in conditions of uh, solitary confinement and really strict restrictions if he does go to the U.S., regardless of whether the specific merits of these assurances are respected. So now, and Stella, of course, can comment at greater length yeah. about this, but the defense has... Uh, filed uh, leave uh, to appeal to the Supreme Court, which would be another step of the appeal process here in the UK uh, before any further action can be taken. Yeah, Stalam, my question here is, do the mental health grounds enough to stop his extradition to the United States? Um, well, the um, magistrate, the lowest uh, judge, uh, court judge, uh, considered that they were sufficient. And in fact, the high court um had acknowledged uh, that the magistrate had reached the correct conclusions. They accepted all her conclusions about the risk to Julian's life should he be extradited. But then they said um, that there was a new element, which were these political assurances from the U.S. government. And they deferred to the relationship between the two countries uh, and that they, as a court, cannot question this um, political undertaking. Uh, so that it wasn't based on any, um, you know, solid legal reasoning, it was a de deferring to, to the political dimension. And I mean, that's just one other aspect um, that shows this case is entirely political. Uh, the magistrate, so the lowest court judge, was not actually in a position to um, say whether she uh, considered there was any merit to the case because uh, the nature of the U.S.-U.K. extradition treaty is um, extremely weak and favored in, really in, in favor of the United States. Um, the U.K. 
cannot uh, doesn't get any prima facie evidence. Um, they don't interrogate. We can't. We weren't able to uh, cross examine the the statements by the DOJ, and so it's it's really a, a process that is um, basically. Uh, designed to fast-track extraditions, and it was elaborated in the aftermath of, of 9-11. Um, and so it's, it's a terrible piece of, of um, a, a terrible treaty, um, which removes safeguards uh, for individuals. And so I think when, when the extradition um, papers were issued and the case was presented, there were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of commentary from people um, you know, legal experts and so on that said, oh, there's no way this case can go through. I mean, the UK will never extradite Julian Assange because this is clearly a political offense. This is clearly a political crime for publishing evidence of the country that wants to extradite him, uh, um, crimes committed and, and, and so on. Um, you know, the, the UK courts just aren't going to do that. And what we've seen is that the UK courts are incredibly um, constrained as to what uh, they can do. And given that they can't um, go into the merits of the case, um, and given that the UK actually has much weaker press freedom um, legislation than the US, we're in a very dangerous situation in which um, it's, it's um, you know, highly likely that Julian will be extradited just because there aren't the, the right safeguards because the UK has uh, lower press freedoms. Yeah, regarding the legal action, Assange Defense called today the day of action for Assange, the co-sponsoring a call-in to Attorney General Merrick Garland to argue the Department of Justice to drop all charges and free him uh, from jail. So, um, Stella, what do you th- expect from this call-in? Well, because it's a political case, uh, the, U- the U.S. government um, is, you know, keeping an eye out to see what the what the sentiment is around this case. So, what we have here is uh, during the Obama administration, the Obama administration considered whether to prosecute Julian over the 2010 Chelsea Manning leaks, and they concluded that they couldn't. And in fact, the DOJ spokesperson at the time said. We cannot prosecute Julian Assange because he's a publisher. He's not a hacker. He didn't break the law. What happened? During the Trump administration, um, they decided to prosecute Julian anyway because the Espionage Act is incredibly broadly worded and it can be repurposed um, to target publishers uh, because the wording is so vague. It's a piece of legislation from 1917. And so under the Trump administration, for political reasons uh, during the administration, partly Pompeo's uh, campaign to, you know, either kill or anyway, we can go into that when he was head of the CIA, there was a lot of pressure on the DOJ to, um, to so assassinate him. Yeah. Yes. Well, no, the, the CIA was plotting, outright plotting to assassinate him um, and to kidnap him. And in fact, they, uh, implemented a wide-ranging um, uh, attack on WikiLeaks, including an orchestrated uh, campaign to smear Julian and to reduce, basically reduce political support, because what you need in a political case, you need political support to be able to push back against the instrumentalization of the law. When the law is being used for political purposes, you need to be able to um, get 
the public to understand what's really going on beyond um, the activation of of those laws, right? And so there was a there was the the implementation across uh, 2017 intensified in 2018, leading up to his um, his arrest in 2019. And this is documented through a Yahoo News investigative report, 7,500 words with over 30 sources from uh, the CIA itself and other um, agencies in the U.S. during the Trump administration, um, confirming that, in fact, uh, Julian's assassination was discussed at the highest levels of the U.S. government, that Pompeo had um, instructed his agency, the CIA at the time, to develop what they called um, uh, plans, uh, sketches and options uh, about how to carry out uh, uh an execution of Julian in London. And so this is how extreme, and, and for no other reason uh, than to take revenge on, on Julian, not because he uh, posed any actual threat, uh, but because they wanted to silence him forever and basically do what, um, you know, uh, what's classically done to, to, to journalists uh, in authoritarian regimes to, to yeah. kill them or silence them forever. forever. Yeah, I'm just to remind our listeners, if you press the call button, uh, you can be held on the queue and you can ask questions. I think Matthew tried to, uh, he, he was in the caller uh, queue, but I, I don't know what happened. So, Rebecca, um, Wikileaks and Assange did what all journalists around the world should do, making important information available to the public, enabling people to make evidence-based judgment about the world around them and about the actions of their government. And of this action, more than any other, that reveal the state crimes. Why does Assange face charges like what he's facing now? I think it's specifically to make an example of him for doing so and to create this chilling effect, to send a clear message uh, to potential sources, you know, other whistleblowers, etc., to, to journalists, to publishers, uh, that there will be a price to pay if you publish information that a powerful government like the United States, but it could also be other states, if you publish this sort of information that they would prefer to keep hidden. So that is what is at stake in, in political cases like this. And I share Stella's assessment that this is a political case. Um, you know, it is people are targeted specifically uh, to send a signal, to, to set an example for others. So I think um, the reason that the U.S. government continues to pursue this and the U.K. government continues to enable it uh, is very clear. Um, when you look at that gap in the U.S. legislation, the fact that the Espionage Act lacks the public interest defense that's allowing for this to happen, the same legislation exists in the U.K. Our official secrets acts also lack a public interest defense. This type of case could very easily be brought here and in other states around the world. So even targeting him, again, regardless of what happens next, has already to some extent created a chilling effect. So what happens next will be really important and really precedent setting internationally. And all of the states involved know that. And does the United States and the United Kingdom target Assange as a person, as a WikiLeaks uh, publisher, or they are targeting the entire career of journalism now? I think a bit of both. Um, you know, it's he is being targeted for, for his personal involvement uh, with WikiLeaks in the publication of this, but also in, in terms of the, the reach that that then has throughout the entire international community. So I think 
Every journalist working now, especially those who deal with leaked information, uh, should be very worried about what this could next mean for them. Because, as I've said many times, this will not stop with Julian Assange. This will not stop with WikiLeaks. If they are successful, this could so easy, easily be applied to others. And I mean sources, journalists and publishers alike. In fact, the next targets could be the very media outlets that partnered with WikiLeaks uh, on, on the Cablegate leaks in the first place. I mean, these are major publications and everybody should be very concerned about the implications for the entire media community going forward. Okay, cool. Before we continue, Matthew, yeah, you can speak. Yes, I wondered uh, what the reaction is to the fact that Trump pardoned a Mossad handler, Avyam Sela. Not sure of the pronunciation there. How did it feel for uh, Assange loyalists to see that Trump obviously had no interest in pardoning or lessening uh, Assange's treatment or even uh, counteracting the attempt by Pompeo, who, of course, is a Mossad, uh, you know, fixture, Mossad asset? How did it feel to see Sella pardoned? I'm curious what the reaction was and what people learned about about the true politics of the GOP and what was really happening in the background with uh, the clemency shown to Stella. Thank you, Stella. Well, I think I, I was flabbergasted. It wasn't just that. He also pardoned those uh, Blackwater, um, I think seven Blackwater operatives who had been involved in uh, a, a massacre in Baghdad. Um I don't think it's widely known. I don't think it's widely reported that Trump actually, um, you know, pardoned an actual spy. Uh, I mean, for anyone who's really paying attention, it's very clear um, what the what the true uh, um, power um, um, rules of the of the power game are. Uh, it, it doesn't fit the narrative, and maybe that's why uh, these these um, things are not widely reported or discussed. Uh, but yeah, I mean, um, I don't know. I think I think you know Trump's presidency is summed up in 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 his pardon list. I agree with that. Yeah, thank you, Matteo. And um, Stella, still the question regarding what the president of Mexico said last week about requesting pardoning uh, for Assange from Trump and repeated his request against uh, again recently. Um, from your opinion, why has the Biden administration taken up the mantle of former President Trump? It's a good question. I think we shouldn't assume that the Biden administration is uh, uniform on this issue. The Obama administration, we know, wasn't uniform on this issue. Uh, they leaned against prosecution. Under the Trump administration, we know that at least two two uh, prosecutors who were working on this case in the DOJ were removed from the case because they disagreed with a, with uh, charging Julian under the Espionage Act, and so they were taken off the case. Uh, that was reported, I think, by the Washington Post, um, under the Biden administration, you know, they want to project that they defend media freedom. And you shouldn't underestimate the importance and the power uh, that of the soft power the U.S. has by um, taking on that mantle internationally. Uh, and it is completely uh, 
um, devalued by what they're doing to Julian. And so that's when, you know, you have this uh, uh, perfect reply to, to, you know, when the U.S. says uh, stop jailing journalists, um, the authoritarian governments, the jail journalists say, well, well, look what you're doing to Julian Assange. Mind your own business. Um, there was a viral uh, video clip of the president of Azerbaijan uh, on the BBC. I think it had, you know, three million views in, in two weeks or something, one week, considering the, the you know, the the topic it was it was incredible incredible he uh he said you know you're killing assange in in both physically and and uh mentally you're killing him you have him in prison for what for publishing what are you even talking about how can you come to me to tell me about um what i do in my country and you know it's i i, I don't like this whataboutism um term because basically we all lose with this whataboutism whataboutism is what the U.S. is doing with Julian. It's, you know, it's completely self-defeating uh, to have Julian, who was one of the most uh, recognized, well-respected publishers in the world internationally, uh, recognized for, for the incredible impact that WikiLeaks has had. By keeping him in prison, the cost to the U.S., the cost to Britain is enormous. Uh, is transformative, I think. As we pick up regarding this point, um, in September 2020, while Assange was in the high security prison in the UK, the BBC published a report about him with the headline said, Julian Assange, campaigner or attention seeker. In your opinion, why the British media are covering Assange's case with such a narrative? I didn't see that particular uh, piece, I have to say. But um, yes, at times, media coverage in this country in particular has been a bit disappointing on the case. Um, I think it is slowly changing. Um, at this point, nearly two years after the extradition proceedings started, I think that there has been a shift very much back uh, in support of the case, at least in terms of the principle, even if there's still um, misinformation and disinformation that is sometimes circulated about Assange himself. Um, but if you look at how it's often covered in other parts of the world or by independent media, there sometimes can be a bit of a different um, shift in tone. But that is why um, I really emphasize the precedent that this will set and the, the fact that every working journalist around the world should be concerned about how this will impact uh, the environment for journalism. Because, again, it's not just going to be applied to uh, to Julian Assange, to WikiLeaks, to, to others that may be thought of as independent or, or alternative media. This will shape the entire landscape, uh, even for mainstream media organizations. So that's very much worth bearing in mind. And it's one reason that we have tried to be so vocal as RSF. Um, we have really actively campaigned and we have tried to encourage others along. Um, again, I do think that there has been a shift over the past two years. I think there is a very clear, uh, strong support for him internationally from those who care about press freedom and from serious media organizations. Um, so now, really, the focus should be on the governments involved, in particular on the Biden administration. That is our key advocacy call is on uh, the Biden Department of Justice to drop the charges to close this case once and for all. None of this is inevitable. At no stage do they have to continue down this path. We were extremely disappointed uh, that this administration chose to move forward with the appeal. They could have, on inauguration nearly a year ago, uh, simply 
chosen to close the case at the time and distance themselves from uh, the Trump administration's legacy on this. They did not. That was a major missed opportunity, but it is not too late. Nothing can be undone, of course, from everything that Julian Assange has gone through over more than a decade. But steps could be taken now to stop further damage from occurring, not only to this man, but to their own reputation. As Stella has mentioned, you know, when when the U.S. government talks about its commitment to media freedom, to freedom of expression, to human rights, this case will be a thorn in the side of this administration and any subsequent administration as long as it continues. The ver- the best possible outcome now would be to acknowledge that uh, and to just close this case uh, to lead by example and show that you know, uh, that the U.S. is willing to address domestic issues, including this case in the U.S. that it has filed against Julian Assange, if it is going to be serious about trying to reclaim an international leadership role on these very principles. Yeah, and Stella, why there is many um, ministry media, Rebecca said this change in the last two years, but still many publication and ministry media turning blind eye to Julian Assange case, specifically in the United States and in the United Kingdom. Maybe some media in Germany, in France, covering his case uh, more than any other publication in the UK or in the US. What's your thoughts? I've seen a shift in the print media, uh, I think, in in the UK. The broadcast media is still um, not where it should be. Uh, Why is it like that? Well, I think... um, it's a good question. I think the case is not properly understood. Anyone who actually sits down and looks at the indictment and actually understands what's at stake um, will understand that the the case is extremely dangerous. Not just you know for for journalists in the UK who are working in the UK. I mean, just to remind your you know everyone who's listening. Julian is not a U.S. citizen. He is an Australian citizen. He was not in the U.S. He was publishing from Europe. He was publishing in collaboration with uh, many different publishers uh, in the U.S., in the U.K., in Europe, and so on. The U.S. is basically applying its laws extraterritorially, and the U.S. is saying what other countries can publish and cannot publish, what journalists in other countries are allowed to publish without getting prosecuted under U.S. law. It's absolutely mad. And anyone else, any other country can apply the same principle. You know, uh, Turkey can say, well, we, we want to prosecute a German journalist publishing in Germany or a U.S. journalist publishing in the U.S. So it's, it's a crazy proposition. Um, so, you know, everyone should be completely alarmed by, you know, the principle, but also the fact that Julian is being charged with a 175-year potential sentence. Um, It's insane. The RSF put out um, a a roundup of last year, and Julian faces the highest potential sentence of any journalist in any country. Uh, So this is really just completely out there. And I think that part of the problem is that when Julian and WikiLeaks first started publishing in 2010, WikiLeaks was really, you know, introducing something completely new to journalism. First of all, it was just as the beginning of big data set journalism was coming in. Um, but WikiLeaks was doing it better. It was finding better data sets and it was partnering with other 
media organizations because it just didn't have the capacity to put out the analysis. Now, a common misconception is that WikiLeaks just publishes files. Actually, WikiLeaks has published, you know, hundreds of articles of analysis on its own publications. Uh, You can go to the WikiLeaks website and find those, uh, including articles written by Julian himself. Uh, But basically, WikiLeaks is you know, didn't have the capacity to cover the the uh, incredibly high-quality information that it was receiving because WikiLeaks had um, the state-of-the-art uh, source protection system. Julian is a, uh, uh, comes from the world of cryptography. Uh, he was a cryptographer and a uh, security expert in his 20s. And so he applied that to the world of journalism and found the, you know, as he, he understood the architecture of the internet in the, as it was, you know, uh, as the internet was developing in the 90s and the early 2000s, and understood that as journalism moved onto the internet, source protection would become, uh, you know, critical, um, and it would be impo- impossible to protect sources unless you had some kind of uh, encrypted uh, Dropbox, encrypted, you know, the, the equivalent of the of the brown am- envelope on the internet. And so he developed that. And that's what WikiLeaks came up with. And that's why WikiLeaks became so incredibly successful. Uh, And so WikiLeaks was a newcomer at the same time as journalists, like the media, like the, 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 uh, what they call legacy journalism, the old media houses were losing all their funding. Uh, They didn't, they didn't have a funding model uh, to survive in this new environment. And here was WikiLeaks, uh, you know, this tiny organization that was outdoing everyone and that was trying to, you know, and so there was a lot of um, jealousy. There was a lot of, you know, who's this new kid on the block who's who's on the front page of, you know, when do you have a journalist on the front page of, of every newspaper uh, and, you know, treated as a celebrity? That doesn't happen. And that's what uh, Julian, you know, with collateral, collateral murder and throughout the 20... Um, you know, throughout 2010, was uh, became a you know like a folk hero, and he's still a folk hero. But then, what we've had in the West is basically a a, a character assassination over the past 10 years. Um, but he, you know, look at his the reporting in the 20 in in 2010, and so it, it wasn't you know is is he just an attention seeker? It, it was uh, the opposite. It was like this this man with such magnetism and you know um this this uh trailblazer uh and so i think there was a lot of uh what we have is a kind of a hangover from a lot of people who were around at the time um who were had professional jealousy over julian and of course there's also been this orchestrated smear campaign of planted stories uh to try to reduce public support for julian with um I mean, outright false fabricated stories. And the most famous of those fabricated stories was one that appeared on the front page of the Guardian newspaper in, uh, I think it was September uh, 2018, saying that Paul Manafort had visited Julian in the embassy. A complete lie. Um, but basically, the, the standards about publishing information about Julian had, had fallen to such a low that you could get away with that kind of thing. And that was part of, you know, at the same time, Pompeo... Pompeo's uh, CIA was engaged in this uh, planting of false stories. And that's in that Yahoo News article um, from, I think it's September last year, 
September 2021 um, that had this, you know, incredible detail and about how the CIA implemented um, a multi-pronged attack on WikiLeaks. And one of those attacks, and probably the most, you know, significant and successful was an orchestrated campaign to uh, reduce support by through propaganda, basically through through um, uh, obfuscating uh, what was really going on, through lying about what what you know what he was saying, who he was meeting, and so on. Uh, and at the same time, he was gagged by Ecuador from March March um, twenty nine. 2018 sorry so he was he wasn't able to speak for himself uh so it's just you know incredible to look back and see how how um how things have developed yeah you you highlighted and raised a very important point about the kind of work that julian did in the last decades rebecca my question is what the difference is in your opinion between assange's work and wikileaks work and any other investigative journalist regarding publishing classified and secret information well, actually, um, to build on onto what Stella said and to, to answer your question a bit, I think as well it's worth remembering how much the landscape of journalism has changed over the past 11 years that this case has been going on. I know many younger journalists uh, aren't even aware sometimes of how the case started. I, I had a conversation recently where um, a journalist who was probably about 30 years old said, okay, this has been going on for a long time. I don't really know what it's all about. And I appreciated the conversation that we could then have. But if you look at how much journalism has changed, I think WikiLeaks mainstreamed um, a lot of the sort of methods that we see now, how many media outlets have uh, secure tools, easily searchable online now where uh, sources can share uh, confidential or sensitive information. How many collaborative projects have we now seen, which are really uh, widely uh, lauded as brilliant journalism? I mean, the, the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, so many collective efforts now. Uh, WikiLeaks is really uh, responsible for planting many of those early seeds and sort of um, showing the world what could be done if we don't think of journalism as having to be done in a, in a specific way. But this question is maybe, Osama, also a way to dispel one of, one of the myths about this case, uh, which is, so some journalists would say what WikiLeaks did is not journalistic because they published unredacted information. So I didn't actually know until a couple of years ago the length to which Julian Assange and WikiLeaks had gone to work in partnership with a, a, a coalition of professional media organizations to redact the information um, the evidentiary portion of the extradition proceedings was really interesting to me, even as somebody who had already campaigned on the case, uh, how much more I learned about it, which I think that many people are not aware of. Um, WikiLeaks, along with The Guardian, The New York Times, Le Monde, El Mundo, and I think it was Der Spiegel had been working for months uh, to sift through the documents. And the intention was not to publish this large data set of unredacted documents, but publication was forced through a series of really um, unusual circumstances. A, basically, the password was disclosed in a book uh, by David Lee and Luke Harding in the index, which allowed a third party to then access the data set and publish it. And we heard really compelling evidence about how Julian Assange personally and WikiLeaks worked to try to mitigate 
risk to any individuals that would then be named as the result uh, of the publication of these documents. There are recordings of Julian Assange calling the White House, calling the State Department, warning them that this was coming, that it was out of their control and urging them to take action to protect sources. So anyone who would say that no care was taken, that is certainly not the case. I would also note that in every part of this process so far and everything that we've seen in court, while the US government still rhetorically claims, and as part of its superseding indictment against Assange, it, it claims that he knowingly put sources at risk. They have not yet presented a single shred of evidence of any person being concretely harmed by the publication of these documents. That's really important to note. They have had more than a decade. If there was evidence of any concrete harm, we would have seen it by now. So yeah, I hope and, that anybody still on the fence for those reasons would at this point really yeah. consider that their information is outdated and maybe uh, it was a misperception in the first place. And just want to add in this point uh, specifically, Rebecca, and this question for Stella. In 2013, a Pentagon study couldn't identify a single instant of anyone killed as a result of being named in the WikiLeaks trove. So why Julian is persecuted for such allegations or accusations? Well, because the accusations are not that they, he put people at risk. The accusations specifically are that he received information from a journalistic source, that he possessed that information, and that he communicated it to the public. That is the essence of the case against Julian. And I think there's a lot of um, deliberate confusion. Uh, people think that he is being prosecuted for being, putting people at risk. He's being prosecuted because the Espionage Act is incredibly broadly wor worded. And it, uh, according to this interpretation, the Biden administration is now continuing, is criminalizing journalistic activity. And this uh, putting people at risk is just the kind of the sweetener that's been put on it um, in order to sell uh, what is a, a prosecution that criminalizes journalism. Yeah, Matthew, go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, as I, as I try to make sense of the big picture history of the past 10 years and, and where Julian plugs in, I really, uh, I come to the conclusion that a lot of what has happened Obviously, uh, the, the USG is, is just vindictive towards Julian because he threatens a lot of the undergirdings of what was really a unipolar world with, uh, with the US as the, you know, the absolute alpha empire, um, and wanting to preserve that role and kind of seeing that role as almost like a mandate of heaven in terms of the, the kind of arrogance that went with the triumphalism at the conclusion of the Cold War. I think, I think almost everybody of all political backgrounds would agree with that. The question I want to ask is um, not not to put aside, you know, the human rights abuses that obviously involve Julian that are uh, you know that are sadistic and are a demonstration of sadism more or less, and in terms of uh, the impulse they come from. But as we uh, as we look at kind of the um, events in in Belarus and Kazakhstan, especially the cynical way that. Peskov and Putin are kind of dismantling Kazakh civil society right now to kind of terraform their new arrangement is, is the equivalent of WikiLeaks in the future. Here's what, I, what I'm wondering and, I, and what I wonder if, if people want to want to think about a bit is the future of the equivalent of WikiLeaks going to have to adjust away from a unipolar 
uh, world where the U.S. is a true hegemon to what I think Henry Kissinger has kind of been trying to ease the world into over the past 20 years, which is a new truly uh, – three kind of three power system between the U.S. and the Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China. Is there going to be a, a new need for a WikiLeaks, which looks at all three powers as equally suspect, equally abusive, equally hegemonic? Is that going to be the Julian that we're talking about in 15 or 20 years or five or 10 years? Um, if, if, you, if you folks have any thoughts on that, I know it takes attention away from from Julian's persecution and uh, and the sadism behind it and the the layers and layers of bad faith with uh, cartoonishly evil people like Pompeo, which it would be good to focus on. But I, I wonder about that question. You know, is is this new kind of multipolar world, which uh, which certainly uh, Chinese and Russian intellectuals have, have have pushed to some degree, is this new multipolar world going to going to mean that? The what the equivalent of WikiLeaks, whether or not it actually is WikiLeaks ten years uh, from now, needs to be more of a generalized response to uh, to three abusive hegemons, three abusive empires, three uh, three supremacist cultures that have no conception of of rights outside their supremacist structures, which I think really fairly describes kind of the white American impulse behind the GOP in the U.S. And also fairly describes kind of the ethnic Russian supremacism behind Putin, and of course the hand supremacism behind uh, behind Xi and and the current incarnation. Well, really, what what the CCP always was, uh, you know, in my opinion. Any anyhow, if anyone has uh, thoughts on that, I'd appreciate it. Yes, Stella Pekka, anyone want to jump in, please? Yeah, sure. I mean, well, may a thousand WikiLeaks flourish, but WikiLeaks is still there. WikiLeaks is still publishing. The problem is that WikiLeaks editor, well, uh, publisher, is in prison. He's imprisoned, and that's what's you know stopping WikiLeaks from being able to do its job. Uh, WikiLeaks uh, was banned in China. Um, many of the first publications by WikiLeaks were about China. WikiLeaks has published about Russia. WikiLeaks is um, limited to a degree by uh, what, um, by where it is successful. Um, you know, the U.S., WikiLeaks became very successful um, within the U.S., uh, specifically the U.S. military. There were a lot of U.S. military leaks um, almost from the beginning. Um, some of the biggest leaks were about uh, Guantanamo Bay. And so, uh, you know, WikiLeaks is, is a... Part of the part of the curse uh, and the blessing of WikiLeaks is that WikiLeaks is completely um, apartisan, and so you know it doesn't have a uh, a uh, immovable base because it is willing to publish about the Democratic Party, about the uh, Republican Party, about China, about Russia, about the U.S. Um, you know, obviously, uh, uh, lately you've seen the Chinese government has been using uh, Julian's case to um, talk about how hypocritical the U.S. is. Uh, but WikiLeaks has published about, um, um, you know, about China as well and about, in fact, every every country in the world. Uh, so absolutely, you know, the, the, there has to be 
a strong press uh, all over the world that is able to publish without uh, without being fearing imprisonment. But what we've seen uh, by taking this case, the U.S. has set a new standard, a standard in which journalists, in which publishers who publish true information that embarrasses powerful, the powerful that embarrasses governments are imprisoned. Um, and that is, you know, it's lowering the standard for the entire world. And, you know, that's why it's so important to push back on this prosecution, because it doesn't just threaten uh, journalists uh, in in the US or, or in the UK, it, it threatens journalists everywhere. Um, you know, this is... Um, it's happening in in you know in Finland even uh, Finland is is uh, charging three journalists for publishing uh, information about um, the uh, in Finnish uh, surveillance uh, uh, activities. Uh, it's it's happening everywhere. This isn't just something uh, of that happens in countries um, you know that that have a history of prosecuting journalists. There's a, a, a new trend and that new trend has been started by the kind of the, the, yes, the hegemon who has, who says that it protects and defends media freedom. And if they're capable of defending, saying they defend media freedom while prosecuting Julian, um, well then, you know, it's fair game for everyone. Just, just to add to that, and Stella, please feel free to add to this or correct me if needed. But um, as I understand the philosophy uh, that Julian Assange has applied to his work and, and that WikiLeaks does, in fact, um, and others, too, including uh, people that are widely viewed as heroes like Daniel Ellsberg, who gave very passionate uh, and powerful testimony as an expert witness in this case as well. What drives them is not you know, the interests of one state, but the whole question of whether states should hold uh, secret information, right? So if it's about transparency, it's it's questioning whether whether any information should ever be held secret. And so we, we are looking at this now through the U.S. lens because, of course, this particular set of circumstances led to the U.S. opening this case, but it could have easily been replicated by other states. And I think what concerns the states uh, that are actively either bringing this this case forward or enabling it or those who are keeping quiet is because they know that what has been brought to the light now maybe threatens their ability to operate in the way that states have operated in modern history. So that, that's what's really being considered now is should, should not everything then be fully open and transparent to the public? Is this about transparency? Is this about freedom of information? Um, and I find that a really interesting line of debate. And I think what Daniel Ellsberg had to say in particular uh, is worth everybody examining. Um, he rejected the idea that the Pentagon Papers leak was good, but Assange is somehow bad. He views very much this set of leaks and the work of WikiLeaks as being in the same vein as what he set out to do with the Pentagon Papers so many years ago, which we can now see the historical value that that has had. And I believe that this set of leaked information and that the work of organizations like WikiLeaks will have serious historic implications. I believe that this case will have historic implications. Um, so the question now is which side of history are these states and are you know, media around the world going to be on? And I know which side I'd like to be on. Great. And um, Jenny? Yes, I, I belong to a faith that teaches that there will come a day when we will no more have any secrets. It's literally prophesied. So I, I believe we're, we're going to get there. 
Uh, but I do have a specific question for all three of you. Have any of you been intimidated or harmed in any way for your reporting? Oh, I, I can make a, um, another episode about my story. But uh, yeah, for myself, I told Stella and Rebecca before about this. I presented audio leaks about the president of Egypt in my TV show. And um, I was sentenced five years in absentia. And the Egyptian regime put my name in three terrorist lists. And they called the Interpol to extradite me. But I'm now, thanks God, I'm a refugee in the UK. So yeah, for sure. Well, I think it's important for the journalist to document their own stories. And I know there's a reluctance there to kind of toot your own horn and say, hey, this happened to me, because nobody wants to be a victim. But I think these stories are very, very important. Yeah, Stella and Rebecca, if you, if you have an answer. Well, I mean, I, I you know, I've... <sighs> the short answer is, is yes. Um, we were... Julian was in the uh, Ecuadorian embassy and there was kind of a, a, a um, climate of terror there towards the end. Uh, there was a lot of intimidation going on at the kind of micro scale um, within that embassy. But there has been this, you know, very overt um intimidation that has gone on since day one that WikiLeaks started publishing uh, the collateral murder video, the helicopter strike in Baghdad, um, and the Iraq war logs and the Afghan war logs and so on. Uh, there were calls on uh, Fox News, but not just Fox News, um, calling for Julian to be assassinated overtly, um, that he should be you know, taken out in, in Europe, that they're, they're, that he should be shot, that he should be drone strike, that he should be kidnapped and taken to a black site. And all of these things that then Pompeo took as good ideas to implement, right? Um, so there, there, it's been a constant. And um, I, I also um, experienced that uh, kind of intimidation uh, towards the... Um, the last kind of year and a half that Julian was inside the embassy. And I, I don't, you know, it doesn't compare to what, what Julian has gone through. Uh, but I, I definitely was there and I experienced it and I did fear for my life. I was followed. My mom was followed. Our six month old baby uh, was um, targeted for his DNA. And this is in, in part of the uh, U.S. Um, in, in, in Spanish there's a Spanish um, case that is investigating what uh, the what was going on inside the, that embassy. And just to summarize, uh, the corporation owned by Trump's biggest uh, donor, Sheldon Adelson, was hiring the uh, uh, security firm that was working inside the embassy secretly because Ecuador wasn't aware um, to gather information about. Julian and me and our baby, but also about Julian's lawyers and his legal meetings. They were rec recording his legally privileged meetings. Um, they were collecting DNA samples. They were con collecting, um, stealing um, documents from his lawyers and taking them, physically transporting them to uh, the United States, to Las Vegas, where uh, Sheldon Adelson's um, 
casino Las Vegas Sands is and having meetings there and, and physically handing them over. Uh, so it's, it's uh, you know, these are, we're dealing with really shady, I mean, that's an understatement, really dangerous uh, individuals here who were, who I believe Julian was, you know, his, his, I feared very much that, that he might be killed inside the embassy. And this is long before we knew about Pompeo's plans to kill him. Uh, I, I could just feel it. I could feel this, this climate of terror inside that, inside that embassy. And what is happening now is they're trying to kill him by burying him in prison for the rest of his life. It's just by different means. It's, it's the same thing. Yeah, and, and Rebecca, I, I won't stop here because you are following many cases in the Middle East, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, China, Myanmar, and Turkey regarding the repression of freedom of expression, torture, arresting journalists. But when it comes to Julian Assange, why do democratic countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, act like any authoritarian regime, ignoring things like public interest, freedom of press, freedom of journalism? I mean, I think for, for many of the reasons that we've covered, um, I can't, um, I can't give you insight into their thinking because I so fundamentally disagree with it. But I think sometimes there's this risk of the standard satyrs, states that know that they have contributed at least to setting the kind of international standards and feel that so fundamentally, of course, the world knows that they are committed to these very things that often our systems were founded on. I think they, um, they maybe they take it for granted themselves and they assume that populations and even the international community will take it for granted that, of course, they are democratic, even if their behavior suggests otherwise. Um, I think we're at a really troubling time in international politics. And I think it's not just, you know, related to this case and to press freedom, but um, we're really seeing now that very often actors that were traditionally thought of as or accepted as, as acting in good faith are very often not. Um, this is one reason that, again, I, I spend so much time on this case, too, because I think it's so important that we hold our own states to the same standards as even those that we think of as being the worst offenders. There are many days that I spend more time uh, working on issues in our democracies, even than than some of the states that you mentioned, Osama. Um, and I think I've I've said this elsewhere, but um, over the past two years, certainly since the extradition proceedings have been ongoing, I have by far spent more time on Julian Assange's case than any other case in the world. Um, and I work on our top global priority campaigns. Um, so that is that is something. Um, but I think our message to those states would be that we will hold them to account. In fact, I expect more from my own governments. I say my own governments. I'm a dual national, so it's my two states involved in this case, the US and the UK. We will hold them to the same standards, and we should be doing better, in fact, uh, than countries you know, that are at the very bottom of the World Press Freedom Index. Yeah, and that we are doing now, and we will keep doing this. Uh, John, if you are just unmute yourself. Hi, guys. How are you? Hi. Good. Thank you. Good. I wanted to ask you guys about just journalism in general. Hopefully this isn't too far off of, you know, I don't, I don't want to take anything away from, from the, the main topic of Julian, but I find in our modern media, there's a lot of, you know, stuff that is, and I call it stuff on purpose because I just don't know what else to call it, but stuff that is labeled as journalism, but it's not journalism. It's, it's peddled as, you know, it's more opinion. It's more just something someone knows a lot about and they're writing about it and not doing any kind of, <laughs> cross-checking, fact-checking, getting multiple sources, 
things like that. I mean, for instance, if I were to write a, a piece on my wife, you know, obviously I'm hugely slanted because, you know, she's my wife, but like, I, I just, I'm curious what your guys' thoughts on the state of just journalism in general, because um, I find it's just highly, um, uh, I don't know, if I'm trying to think of the right word, but unreliable right now. And, you know, on top of that, who do you guys use for, you know, kind of reputable journalistic outlets? Maybe I could take a first crack at that. Um, I would actually say for Reporters Without Borders, there are many different types of journalists. So maybe you're kind of distinguishing between like news reporters and other types of journalism. But for us, columnists are journalists, bloggers are journalists. We work to defend citizen journalists too. You know, um, I think there, you know, it does need to be distinguished what is what is reporting versus what is opinion. Uh, but we defend many cases of columnists who have been targeted around the world for expressing views, um, particularly in the Middle East, and a number of cases that I can think of. So I wouldn't exclude uh, that type of journalism from being journalism. Um, of, you know, where we get our own information, I, I think, and I've said this for many years, and I still feel it, and, and my own kind of go-to news outlets on a daily basis have changed over the years, but I think diversity is really key. It's really important that we protect pluralism of media in all countries because um, the public has a right to a diversity of thought and opinion and facts, and if we don't have a plurality of information to access, we cannot form fully informed views. We cannot then uh, act to hold our own states to account. So I think that diversity, that plurality is very, very important to protect. And in our own news consumption, I would encourage everybody to just access as much information as you can, both from within your own country and inter internationally. I think it's important as well to, to read international news coverage of one's own country because it, it's often a very different slant and, and to just constantly challenge ourselves uh, and to expand our thinking is really important. And sometimes to change our minds when it's needed and this is something that's really needed in this case now, too. And I think as a campaigner, that's been very challenging. We're not only trying to inform the world about this case. Many people already have a view. We need people to admit if they've gotten something wrong and to change their minds and to speak out now. So I think I'll conclude with that. Excellent. Um, Stella, you were raised in a family where your parents involved in the apartheid struggle and fighting for freedom of your people. Now you have spent the last seven years fighting for Assange's freedom. How this life impacted you as a lawyer, as a freedom campaigner, and before all of that, as a human? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I often refer to, to my upbringing because I think it's I, I was raised in, yeah, I grew up in uh, in Botswana and then in Lesotho. I was I was born in South Africa. Um, my parents were um, involved in the anti-apartheid struggle. I don't know if you're familiar with with the uh, geography of Botswana, but Kaburone, which is the capital, is just you know a ten minute drive from the border with South Africa. And this was in the in the 1980s, and it was a very you know, the tumultuous, uh, violent period in South Africa's history. My parents are artists, um, and they they were involved in in a group that um, of of expat artists and thinkers and and writers and and painters that were fighting apartheid through culture, um, uh, the incredible power of culture to uh, kind of bring things to their essence. Um, we lost a very close friend was, was assassinated. I was only two and a half years old, but that, that, um, 
that experience really marked my parents. Other friends were, were also killed, but he was a very, very close friend to our family. Um, he had lived with us for three years. And um, I think, you know, that that's how I was, how I grew up. Uh, I understood that, um, that if you, if you believe in something, if you believe in uh, something that's right, you have to fight with. You have to fight for it because that kind of shapes who you are, and um, that's how I came into this. I I looked at this case. I saw uh, something that was incredibly important with WikiLeaks. Uh, someone who had been incredibly brave by doing this, and he was in trouble, and he was politically vulnerable. He was politically exposed, and I just um, I wanted to do what I could to defend him. That's how I got into this, and then I got to know Julian as a man, as a person, and he is the most, you know, incredible, intelligent, uh, considerate, funny person. He's nothing like, you know, these these uh, attack jobs uh, make him out to be. Uh, he really believes in the transformative power of giving people knowledge for them to be able to take uh, information and use it to defend themselves. That is at the, you know, at the essence of what, what WikiLeaks is there uh, for. Not to tell you what to think, but to tell you this is what there is. And now use it however you think it should be used to defend your rights, uh, to defend uh, the historical record, etc. And you know, I was I was incredibly inspired by uh, WikiLeaks as a project. I was aware of the risks because I could see, perhaps because I came from this background where I understood that people can actually die for, uh, you know, for their for their um, beliefs if there isn't the protections out there to to defend them. Uh, and that is unfortunately what's happened with Julian. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly um, afraid for all of us. If our, our society, our civilization, if Western countries are incapable of defending Julian, then we're lost. So we reach to the, the last question of this episode. Ripika, what next for Julian Sanch? Well, I hope uh, freedom at the earliest opportunity. Um, we believe that he should be released full stop. He should never have been behind bars. He should not have been arbitrarily detained at the Ecuadorian embassy either. And he should certainly not spend another day there. Um, we believe that on substantive grounds, but just to recall again, his, his mental health, his physical health, add humanitarian urgency to that need for his release. So we would just echo that call on the states involved uh, to ensure that that can happen without further delay whether that is through immediately um, dropping and closing the case on the side of the US, which would be the most desirable immediate outcome, or the UK in reconsidering his uh, detention. Again, as Stella stated, he has not been charged with anything here. He's not been convicted of anything here. He is being held solely on remand because the US is pursuing this case. Uh, he should be released, and this case should not be pursued any further. It's been more than long enough already. It's time to put a stop to more than this decade-long persecution. Yeah, and Stella, I want to end this episode um, with a message from you to Julian Assange. <laughs> well, 
that we will win this. I really think that every decent person, when they understand this case, supports Julian and will fight for his freedom. Thank you very much, Stella Morris, lawyer and Assange's fiancé, and thank you also for Pick Events and Director of International Campaign at Reporters Without Border for being me, uh, with me today in this uh, episode. Free Julian Assange is the main topic of this episode, and I think from human rights perspective, from journalistic perspective, from freedom of press, freedom of publishing, freedom of expression, if you look at Julian Assange's case from any angle, you should say free Julian Assange, and you should work and campaign for his release. Thank you all very much for joining me today in this episode, and see you next Tuesday with a new episode of Untold Stories podcast. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everyone.